announcements. Um, we are going to the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter. Appreciate Brother Daniel helping me out with the PowerPoint down the back. We are possibly going to take a little while this morning and work our way through a reasonable amount of material and do our best to communicate what the Lord has given us today. John chapter 10, starting to read at verse 1 says, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then Jesus again said, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Anybody can testify that's what sin does to us. It comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come, Jesus said, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your presence here today. We ask you, Lord, that you would anoint your vessel, your servant. Lord, as we preach your word this morning, Lord, let your will be done in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jesus made a habit of communicating powerful spiritual concepts using everyday situations for people to relate to. And uh, many of the greatest figures in Israel's history were shepherds. You look in the Old Testament, you go as far back as Abel. You can talk about Jacob, Moses, and David, just to name a few. Many of the the landmark kind of people, the people they look to as big figures in their nation's history. So the idea of a sheepfold or a place where sheep were kept and a shepherd whose voice those sheep recognized was a picture that was easy to comprehend for his audience in the natural level at least, because it says that they didn't understand what it was he was trying to say to them. And so it tells us that Jesus then went on to explain why he he used that example. And because of who Jesus is, when he spoke about something or he used an illustration, he was actually able to be more than one part of the story at the same time. Most of us, if we're involved in a story, we, we feel one character. But because of who Jesus is, he could, he could give you an example or paint you a picture and he could actually be several components of that story. And uh, for example, when we look at the Old Testament, we look at many of the, the types, what we mean by that word types is that things that were recorded or happened that gave us an example of something Jesus would be. He could be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament types at the same time. If you've been here on our Sunday nights, we're doing uh, every second Sunday night doing lessons on the tabernacle. And when we study the tabernacle and all of the furniture and the components that are in it, you'll find they all point to Jesus. 
There's all these various bits and pieces, but all of them he fulfills at the same time. A couple of very simple examples is he is the sacrifice. He is the bread of life. He is the light. He is the high priest. There's only one Jesus, but he is represented by all of those things. And so in John chapter 10, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the sheepfold, he identifies himself as both the door of the sheep and the shepherd. He's not saying that there's multiple versions of him, but he's saying he is fulfilling all of those roles. I hope we understand what I'm talking about. He makes it very clear that there is only one way in to that sheepfold and that the sheep that belong to him will hear his voice and follow him. He said they won't listen to the voice of strangers. And if you know anything about the practice of shepherding sheep in that part of the world, particularly in the ancient world, it wasn't hundreds of thousands of sheep at a time like we have in Australia, but those sheep would actually respond to the voice of their shepherd. Some commentaries suggest that sometimes multiple shepherds would bring their, their flocks into one sheepfold and that when it came time for them to lead them out again, they would come and call their sheep and only their sheep would respond to them and come out of that sheepfold because they recognized the shepherd. Jesus even forecasts in John 10 the giving of his life for his sheep. In verse 3 of that chapter, and I want to just bring your attention to that for the moment, it says, To him, or to the shepherd, the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus mentions somebody here described as the porter. And in almost every other English translation of the scriptures, this person is actually called the gatekeeper or the doorkeeper. And this morning, with the help of the Lord, I want to preach to you about the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper. I think we all understand what a literal door is. However, the word is often used to describe a point of access or a location or situation that allows movement from one place to another. We use the word door. We don't always mean a physical, literal door. We use expressions. You might hear people in the church use expressions such as, the Lord opened a door for them. And uh, what, what we are saying, what we are implying is that God made something possible. For example, if you are at work with somebody or you have a family member and you're praying for them, but you're not really sure how to approach them or how to, to talk to them, and, and God turns that situation around so perhaps they come to talk to you or the conversation goes in a way that allows you to share the gospel with them, we might then say, God opened a door for me to speak to that person. Obviously, we're not suggesting there was a large wooden door between you and your workmate that just swung on its hinges and all of a sudden there they were. But rather, it's an expression that says something, there is an opening, there was an opportunity that didn't seem to be there previously that was there now. And so when Jesus describes himself as the door of the sheep, he's using that same concept. What he is saying is that through him, we are able to become a part of his flock. If we listen to his voice, if we obey his word, we shall be saved and he will provide what we need for our souls. And as the door of salvation, when we hear and obey his word, we pass from a sinful place of death into a place of life everlasting and an eternity to spend with the Lord. It's not a physical relocation. It's not passing through a door frame, but it is something that we do pass through. It is an opportunity. It is an opening. It is a point 
of access. And before Jesus, we did not have that point of access. But when he came and died for us, he created a way for us to come to him. So a door in a spiritual sense is a place of access or somewhere that things can pass through. And Jesus said in our text in John 10 that the door is the only way to come in and that anybody who comes another way is a thief and a robber. We understand very clearly from Scripture that Jesus is the only way. John 14 and 6, and if you can't quote it, it's a good Scripture to memorize. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is the only access point. He is the only door where we can go from being lost to being saved, from being condemned for eternity to being saved and prepared for eternity. He is our point of access. And you see this, this principle underlined throughout the Scripture when, when we talked a little bit about Noah last week, how he prepared an ark and we talked about a place for faith. When, when God gave Noah the instructions to build the ark, he put one door, one door. Now, if you and I were building a boat that big and having to bring in all those animals, how many doors would you put in that thing? But the Lord said, there's one door. You put one door in that. The tabernacle that we're learning about every second Sunday night only had one door or one access point for entry. There was only one way in. And when God gave Moses instruction for the first ever Passover in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 7, He said, they shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Talking about that Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And the blood over the door prevented the destroyer, the Bible says, from entering that house. They walked, as it were, under the blood to go in, but the blood kept the judgment of God out of their home. So the blood that was on the door was both a way into salvation and a barrier against death at the same time. There's a wonderful type of the blood of Jesus Christ for that in us. We need His blood both to redeem us and to protect us. Amen. When Moses, a little later on in the Old Testament, was given the law and the Lord said all these commandments and all these principles and statutes and the things they would remember, in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 20, He said, And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates. So on the doors of their houses were the commandments of God. You also go on and study it. They were to carry them. They were to be connected as a part of their bodies. The commandments of God mattered. So doors, when you look at it in the Scripture, carry some significance in the Word of God. To further, just to underline the idea that I'm presenting about a door being an access point, let's look at a few verses from the New Testament. Acts chapter 14 and verse 27 says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Again, not a literal door, an opportunity. First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9 says, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Paul said there is an opportunity for me to minister. He didn't say it was going to be easy. He said there was actually a lot of adversaries. There was a lot of opposition, he said, but there is a great door that's been opened. The same apostle in 2 Corinthians 2 and 12 
says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Colossians 4 and 3 says, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. These scriptures are all to do with the Apostle Paul and the people that labored together with him having an opportunity to minister the gospel, a door that would open and give them a chance. So doors allow things in, but doors also keep things out. We talked about the ark already, but when God shut the door of the ark, the Bible says that the Lord closed the door, there was no further opportunity to be saved from the flood that was coming. When the door was shut, it was shut. In the parable of the five wise and five foolish virgins, once the door to the marriage was closed, nobody else could get in. The door was closed. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 6, when Jesus was teaching about prayer, he said, but thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet and shut the door. It's not necessarily speaking about a literal closing the door, but if you're sharing a house with anybody more than yourself, it's a good idea to close the door when you pray. But it's about blocking out distractions. It's about putting aside things that would try to demand your attention. It's about getting to that place of prayer. Shut the door. Don't let anything else distract you. We can all testify of how the most mundane things all of a sudden become life and death when you go to pray. You go to pray, I haven't taken the rubbish out. For the rest of the day, you couldn't care less about the rubbish. But when you go to pray, you've got to feed the cat, take the rubbish out, turn the light off, check whatever it is. There's all these things. So Jesus was saying, when you're in that place of prayer, close the door, literally and figuratively. Shut things out. Brother Sham said when he goes to pray, he, he just goes, all the distractions come, he just takes them all off and says, is that, is it, that it, devil, or is there more to come? Okay, let's get them out of the way and now let's pray. We have to be able to shut the door when we pray. Amen. But this morning, we're preaching about the doorkeeper, the keeper of the door. Who is the one watching the door? Who is the porter? David said in the 84th Psalm and the 10th verse, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. If you look into the Old Testament, you'll find there was a whole bunch of doorkeepers assigned to the tabernacle and the temple. But this morning, every one of us here is the doorkeeper of our own souls. Every one of us here has to watch what does or does not come into our hearts and our minds. Because the things we allow determine the outcomes in each day that we live. They set patterns in our lives and into our eternity. We are all individually responsible to keep our own doors. Proverbs 4 and 23 says, Keep thine heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That word keep there means to guard. To guard your heart. Watch what goes in. Watch what you let out. Because those things impact you. Proverbs 25 and 28 says, He that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Now that verse has to do with temperance and with self-control. But the principle still applies that if we're not guarding, anything can come in and go out. You know, why do you have a fence around your house? 
There's some people you don't want in your yard. You, there are some things you might want to keep. If you have a pet, you might want to keep that in your yard. There's a reason for boundaries. There's a reason we guard things. There's a reason that hopefully before you go to bed at night, you've checked the doors. We've gone to bed a few times and left the garage door up. Get up in the morning, oh, garage door's open. Oops. One time my son's bike was gone. My fault, didn't guard the door. Fortunately, the insurance company got him a new bike and then he lost it anyway. But we are responsible to guard our hearts and our minds, each one of us. I read something recently that Brother Terry Shock said, some of you know that name, it, it particularly challenged me. He said this, he said, I am responsible for my spirit. I am responsible for my actions. I am responsible for my reactions. He said, I will stand before God and give an account for it all. He said, I cannot use a church, a pastor, a leader, or anyone else as an excuse. You are the keeper of your own door. I am the keeper of my own door. I must determine what goes in and out of my heart, my mind, and my spirit. Amen. We're, not, we're obviously not talking about a literal door. We're talking about things that are spiritual. I do not believe this morning, just to change lanes a little bit, I do not believe the devil can read our minds. But I do believe he tries to influence how we think. How do I know that? Because the Bible says he is a liar and he's the father of lies. And what do liars do? They try to tell you things that aren't true. The devil's most powerful weapon is his voice, the things he tries to suggest. He tried it with Eve, and that's where the rot set into the human race. He tries to whisper things into our minds. He tries to influence how we think. He tries to drop thoughts and attitudes into your mental mailbox, if you want to put it that way. Don't open that mail. Don't open it. Put it straight in the shredder. You don't need to read the mail that he tries to send you because although he cannot read our minds, what he does is he watches what we do and he looks for weaknesses that are demonstrated in our attitudes, our behaviors and our speech and he recognizes that there may be a point of access. He looks for a weakness, he looks for a door. He does know us. The book of Job, the beginning of the book of Job is a really unusual setting where the sons of God who we believe are the angels are, are present before the Lord and Satan himself comes amongst them. And the Lord says to Satan, have you considered, what he's saying is, have you noticed, are you aware of my servant Job? You don't read that Satan said, who? Nah, sorry, never heard of him. Satan knew exactly who God was talking about. He knew exactly who God was talking about because Job was a righteous man. And everything Job did was what God wanted him to do, and it was it grated against the devil. And if the devil could have read Job's mind, he wouldn't have wasted his time. He would have known that Job was a faithful man and not a quitter, but Job, the devil had seen that Job was a man that loved his family, that did everything he could to provide for his family, even to do everything to the extent of his own power to protect them spiritually. And so when the devil was allowed to harm Job, he went for his family. Because he saw that man's love. But Job was faithful to the Lord. The demons and the possessed man in Acts chapter 19, the sons of Siva, these foolish young men tried to cast this evil spirit out. 
and they said, they even spoke out of this man to those young men and said, we know who Jesus is and we know who Paul is. But who are you? They knew who the apostle Paul was. I want you to understand something. If you're serving God, the devil knows who you are. That's not something to make you afraid. That's something to make you aware. Amen. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But just like Job wouldn't grant access, Paul wouldn't grant access either. But we are the doorkeepers of our own hearts this morning. Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 4. The story of the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. The Bible says that they brought offerings to the Lord. And verse 4 says, And Abel he brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Both his attitude and his actions were acceptable to God. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Neither his attitude nor his actions were acceptable. And Cain was very wroth. He was angry. And his countenance fell. That means he had a long face. His bottom lip was sticking out, was dragging on the ground. And the Lord said in verse 6, The Lord said unto Cain, Why are you so furious? Why art thou wroth? Why have you got such a long face? And then he presented this challenge to Cain. He said, If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And that's the reality. That's how simple it really is. If we do the right thing, God will accept our worship and our praise. But if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. It's a little confusing the King James. What it's saying is, is Cain, if you'll do the right thing, your worship will be accepted of God. But if you don't, sin's waiting at the door. And it wants to control you, but you need to rule over it. It's up to you whether or not you open that door. Even if you just crack that thing, the devil's waiting for an opportunity. He's looking for a point of access it is our responsibility if we have any wisdom at all to shut the door on the enemy people people who suffer from demonic possession or oppression now if you're not familiar with those expressions when someone is possessed with an evil spirit it means they have total control of them you read about that in the new testament and and you see people possessed when someone is oppressed it means that the devil is troubling them that he has had access somehow. Usually people who are in those situations have at some point in their lives become involved in an activity or an environment that opens a door, that allows access to the enemy. It may not have been a decision they made. Sometimes it's things that happened when their parents and family homes and extended families and other situations, but at some point a door was opened and the enemy was given access we need to take great care and watch what we open the door of our lives to. Amen. I'm going to say that again. We need to take great care. We are the doorkeepers. It's up to us what comes in and what goes out. Our world, whether we like to think about it this way or not, is under the influence of the devil. The thinking and the philosophies of our society are not from God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This verse speaks to us of levels of authority of spiritual wickedness. 
I don't want to get off track into all of that this morning. And I'm not suggesting that every one of our government officials is demon-possessed. That's nonsense. What I am suggesting is the way that society thinks and the things that mankind is introducing socially are not godly. They are subtle, but they are not from God. Amen. We need to recognize that the devil uses his influence at all levels. Amen. We need to be very careful about the things that we accept as good ideas. You know, you need to scratch the surface on some things. Find out what's... Because a lot of things can look good at, at, at surface level. Some of us... Who's heard the story of the Trojan horse? story many of us heard when we were kids. Ancient story from ancient Greece when the Greeks... If I've got the story correct, and there's probably a few versions, but you're getting mine this morning. The ancient Greeks were laying siege to the city of Troy. And they were unable to get in. And so what they did was they, they made a giant horse out of wood. And they left it outside the gates and they pretended to leave. And the, the, the people in the city of Troy came out and took this horse as a, a trophy or some kind of conquest. And they brought it into the city to celebrate. But inside that horse were Greek soldiers. And during the night... I imagine the people in Troy had a great big party because they thought the war was over. So they probably partied too much and drank too much and slept really heavily. During the night, those Greek soldiers came out of the horse, opened the city gates, let the armies in, and conquered that city. That is the devil's tactic. He will wrap something in things that look harmless and beneficial. Let me give you a very current example of this, and listen to me carefully so you don't misunderstand me. The political environment we're in, I I'm pre taught about this a couple of months back, of different discrimination and prejudice and all this kind of thing. The lives of every single person matter, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background, regardless of education, regardless of wealth, regardless of anything that makes you an individual. Your life is valuable. But believers should be very careful before they support the Black Lives Matter movement. Because on the outside, it looks like a good idea, but when you scratch the surface of what that political organization stands for, it is anti-God, it is anti-Scripture. So there is a good concept there. All lives matter, absolutely. We support that 100%. But be careful what you add your voice to without finding out what's going on underneath. Because you might find yourself supporting something that you'll be really embarrassed to find out about later on. That's how the devil works. He doesn't just come in and say, hey, here's a whole plate full of wickedness. Have at it. He comes subtly, presents things that aren't confronting. When he, when he came to Eve, he was gentle. He was careful. He was discreet. But he got his hook into humanity because she took the bait. Amen. We've got to be careful that we guard our hearts and minds. There's a lot of things that are happening at the surface in society, social movements and different philosophies that seem to be okay. Scratch the surface before you hitch your wagon to those things. Find out what's going on behind the scenes. And let me I do not want to be misunderstood. Every single life matters. The mistreatment of any person because of any difference or uniqueness is wrong and sinful. Should never ever happen. But be careful what you support vocally. Amen. Bless the Lord. We have to guard our hearts and our minds. We are the keepers of our own doors. Married men, raise your hand if you're a married man. If you're not sure, ask your wife. 
Married men, you are the keepers of the doors of your homes and your families. You don't just have the personal responsibility for your own soul. If you're not getting that right, your family's not going to go too well. But you are the keepers of the doors of your homes and not just locking the house at night before you go to bed and hopefully closing that garage door. But you are responsible in the sight of God for what comes in and what goes out. You are not a dictator. Don't ever take my teaching about marriage and go home and say the pastor said I'm the boss. Ladies, you have my permission. If any of your husbands say that, call me directly. Okay, we'll sort them out. But you are responsible to lead your families, to guard the attitudes, the spirits, the content. You know, the, this world is trying to get to your kids, trying to get them to accept things as normal that are not normal, that are ungodly. Men, you have to guard your houses. You are the doorkeeper. You are not the dictator. You and your wife should be working together on this, but you need to be leading. You need to be the one saying, I'm not sure we should have that in our home. I'm not sure that's okay. You know, Sometimes it's not easy for your kids. Sometimes you might have to stand against certain things that are happening at school. And sometimes that means your kids get a little bit of uncomfortable situations. And at least one occasion when I was at high school, my mom wrote to my teacher and said the book they wanted me to read was not acceptable. I didn't particularly enjoy that experience. But you've got to take a stand for what is right. And your kids need to know that you're keeping the door of your family's home. They need to know why. You need to be careful about their influence. Be careful about their entertainment. We want our kids to have fun, but we want it to be healthy and wholesome. If you're going to be a doorkeeper of your family's homes, you better be praying. You better be led by the Spirit and praying. Amen. Amen. As the pastor, I am the doorkeeper of this church. I'm responsible for what is preached, what is taught, what is allowed to visit, and what is allowed to stay. Just like your homes. Amen. I remember I was reminiscing with Brother Paul Turkington on Friday night some years ago now quite... I don't know how many, probably 18, 20 years ago now, Brother Paul, when Brother Glass was still our pastor, there was a man that had some connection to the church that was a very personable man, apparently a very nice man. I never actually met him, but he had a lot of very strange doctrines. Without being unkind, he's what the Scripture would have called a false prophet. And Brother Glass had to go overseas on a mission trip, as he often did back then, and so... Um, he used to leave me in charge, which was terrifying. But he called Brother Paul and I into the office one Sunday morning. And uh, he said, if that man shows up, well, I'm not here. He said, if he comes through that door, he said, you ought to take him into the office, close the door behind him, open the other door and tell him to go and never come back. And I thought, Jesus, please help him not to come. Please help him not to come. Please help him not to come. <laughs> I didn't want to deal with that situation. But I understood that Brother Glass was going to be away, but he was still the doorkeeper of the church. He didn't want somebody coming in, spreading things that he would have to sort out when he came home. And I thank the Lord that he was merciful and that man never showed up. I still to this day don't know what he looks like. God was good to me. But that's the responsibility of a doorkeeper. Sometimes you do things that aren't popular. As a father, when you guard your house, you're not always going to win the most popular family member of the week award. Sometimes the kids aren't going to like you very much. 
I think I've told you before, but my kids told me once that I was where happiness went to die. I didn't particularly enjoy that. But sometimes you've got to draw a line and say, this is who we are. These are the things we do. These are the things we don't do. And guard the doors of your homes. Revelation chapter 1, if you would, please. read a few verses here and then I'm going to try and break it down a little because I know it's a, it's a passage of scripture and a book of scripture that some of us are not as familiar with as others. But Revelation 1 and verse 11, it's Jesus speaking, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, under Ephesus, under Smyrna, under Pergamos, under Thyatira, under Sardis, under Philadelphia, and under Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, remembering that John had seen Jesus in his humanity, but now he was seeing Jesus in his glory. So he was saying, I'm seeing a comparison here, but this is a whole different picture. That's why he said, one like unto the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His, hair, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like under fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. I'm not going to get into a lot of this, but he, he's using language to communicate a picture. He wasn't saying that there was a, a great big broadsword hanging out of Jesus' mouth. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength in the heat of the day. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. There can only be Jesus. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, or the things to come. The mystery of the seven stars which thou saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now I know that for some of you, particularly those of the new you walk with God, this is like, what in the world does all this mean? John was on an island called Patmos. He was there, he was in exile, he'd been sent there on his own as a form of punishment. During his time there, God gives him visions of prophetic events. A lot of these things were images that he was doing his best to communicate. I'm not sure that John necessarily understood everything that God showed him, but he wrote as God told him to. There were a lot of the events that John was involved in seeing and recording have to do with the last days. We would say prophetic things to do with the end times. And John records these visions in what we now call the book of Revelation. So in this chapter, in the very beginning of this book, John, the Bible says, hears a voice behind him like a trumpet. It's obviously a loud authority kind of voice. And the voice tells him to write to seven churches in Asia. Now, if we looked at a map, we would probably better understand that as being in Eastern Europe today. All these They're not in what we would think of as Asia. We would think of it as Eastern Europe. And you can go to the ruins of some of these cities if you get the opportunity. And something I would love to do. And when John turns around 
to the voices behind him, and when he turns around, he sees Jesus in his glory. And John struggles with the words he has to try to find ways to describe how incredible this sight of Jesus is. You know, his eyes like fire, and he's just, you know, he describes him as that, that purity. And Jesus explains to him, he talks to John about writing to these churches, and he explains to them that the, the things that he saw, he said the golden candlesticks represent seven churches. And he gave the seven names of those churches in the passage we read. And he said the seven stars that he saw represent the angels of those seven churches. Now, the word angel here in the scripture simply means messenger. And in this setting, it is often understood, I'm not something I'm going to get into a big argument about, but it is often understood to be referring to the pastors or the leaders of those churches. So in other words, John is being told, write to, these, to the, the leaders, to the pastors of these seven churches, the things I want you to say. That's as a fairly brief overview of what's going on in this passage of Scripture. The seven churches that are listed were, were actual churches in John's day, I believe. And since then, some people have suggested that they represent seven eras in the church throughout history. Some say they represent different spiritual conditions that the church can find itself in. It's possibly both. That's a conversation you can have with somebody later on. But the names of the churches are also significant. The names all have specific meanings, and you can look those up if you're interested when you get home. If you've got Bible software or the internet, you'll be able to find out what some of those names mean. And so in chapters 2 and 3, I'm I'm trying to keep this on one line of thought at the moment. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, John writes the letters as God has instructed him to, to each of the churches, giving them an assessment of their spiritual condition. It's like when you're at school and you got a report card. Anybody hate getting report cards at school? Some Some of you that were good students, you probably thought it was fun. Those of us that went to school for fun and not to work, I hated getting report cards because in the three and a half kilometers from the school to my home, I had to find a creative way to explain the things the teacher had said to make it sound less bad than it really was, which when your mother was a school teacher was a bit of a lost cause. But John was effectively writing to these churches and giving them a report card and saying, this is what God thinks about you guys and how you're doing, and this is what he wants you to know, okay? Um, six out of the seven churches that the Lord had John write to had issues that God was unhappy with. There were things going on in six out of those seven churches that God said, this isn't right. And the Lord made it very clear. He expected them to correct those things. To give, We're not going to go through all seven churches in case everybody's starting to worry what time we're going to finish. But to give you an example, in Revelation chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, He's writing to the church at Ephesus and he says some things to them. And then he says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. He said, there's there's something I'm not happy with because you've you've left your first love. Something in their relationship with God had died. And then verse 5, he said, Remember, therefore, from whence you've fallen, remember where you used to be compared to where you are now, and repent and do the first works. Get back to where this all started or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. So there's a diagnosis, there's instructions for how to fix it, and there's a warning for what happens if they don't fix it. He said, you've lost your first love. He said, you need to repent and get that back again. 
If you don't, I'm going to come and take the candlestick out, which if we're looking at the language, it means the church is going to stop being there. Okay? What is amazing to me about each of these letters to these churches is that although they had flaws and the flaws were serious, God finished each portion, each message to each church with a promise from him if they overcame. It didn't matter how drastic the situation was or how godless the church had become. He said, this is what's going on. This is what you need to fix. And then he said, to him that overcometh. And there was a promise. So all of those churches, regardless of how dire the situation was, God said, there's a way for you to get out of this. What that tells me is that God is always looking for a way to bring his church through. He's always looking for a way to bring his church through those situations. It's never God's desire to kick people to the curb. That's why Peter wrote to us and said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if all of these churches, if they would respond in a fashion that pleased God, they could be overcomers. And that goes for each one of us as individuals as well, regardless of where you're at or what you feel like you've done or how you've let God down. If you will do what God says, you can be an overcomer in the kingdom of God. Amen. So, But as part of my message this morning, I want us to take a couple of minutes just to look at the last two churches that John wrote to. Revelation chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, that's not in the United States, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. So the church at Philadelphia is the only church out of the seven that got what we might call a clean report card. There wasn't any but or no comma. It was just a good report. And Philadelphia means brotherly love. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle John, when he wrote his three epistles, John 1, 2, and 3, there was a very strong emphasis in John's epistles on love for the brethren and how important that was. It's, it's very heavily emphasized, particularly in First John, where he talks about how if we, we say we love God, but we hate our brother, we're a liar. There's a lot of very strong language about how important brotherly love is. And so this church obviously had those attributes that John would write to the church at large about in his letters later on. And a lot, of, you know, everybody wants to be associated with the Church of Philadelphia because it's the one that got the best report card. But the Lord told this church that he had set before them an open door that nobody could shut. There was an access that they had to God and that God had to them that was was from God. It was divine. It was something that no man could interfere with. It doesn't say that it was because they were the most amazing church because it goes on to say they only had a little strength. But they'd kept his word and not denied his name. So as a church, they had been faithful doorkeepers. Not superheroes, not necessarily mighty warriors, but doorkeepers. When you read the letter that's written to them, it's apparent that they faced opposition, particularly from false brethren, from, particularly from people that said they were godly but weren't. And yet they kept brotherly love. 
and they kept the name of God and they kept his word. And because they were doorkeepers, God gave them an open doorway to him that was an access between him, them and God that was powerful. I mean, an open door that no one can shut. That's the benefit or the privilege. If we, if we keep the doors of our individual hearts, of our families and of our church, that's the blessing that God wants us to have. Those things are written for us to aspire to. But then there's the other church I want us to consider. Chapter 3, Revelation 3 and verse 14 says, And unto the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Same thing he said to the other churches. I know what you do, but you're not either cold or hot. He said, I wish, I would that thou were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm. Lukewarm's the cup of tea that's been sitting on the bench for an hour. It's not cold, it's not hot, it's just sort of room temperature. Because you're lukewarm and you're not cold or hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. That's pretty graphic. Because you say, I'm rich, I'm increased with goods, I don't need anything. And you don't know that you're actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is God's assessment of a church. I counsel thee, or my, my strong advice to you is to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich, really rich, not the kind of riches they thought they had, and white raiment that, they may, that you may appear to be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness does not appear. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou may see change the way you're looking at things. Then he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. And then verse 20 is a verse that we often preach in isolation, which sometimes misrepresents it. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him with a fellowship, you know, have something to share some things together, and he with me. This was a church that was not directed by the Word of God or the Spirit of God, but was actually guided by whatever the people wanted. That's basically what Laodicea means. It means the people ruled. It's kind of whatever we felt like, whatever was comfortable for us. They weren't hot or cold. They were just lukewarm. Being lukewarm paints a picture of compromise, of being satisfied with material comfort. See, they said, hey, we're rich. We've got it all going on here. But they were numb to the things of God. And how God felt about this church was expressed graphically in his declaration that he would vomit them out of his mouth. Such was his disgust with their spiritual condition. But then again, we see a door. But this time, the door is closed. To the church at Philadelphia, he said, I've set before you an open door that no man can shut. But when we get to Laodicea, you know, I know, there are churches all over the world that call themselves the Church of Philadelphia. I've never yet seen a church that said, this is the Church of Laodicea, that put it in their, in their actual church name. doesn't happen. It's just like you don't call your daughter Jezebel. You know, there are just some names you want nothing to do with. But this church has a door, but the door is shut. And Jesus is actually standing outside of the door and he's knocking hoping that someone will hear his voice 
and open the door. Two very, very different pictures. One where because they kept his word and not denied his name, even with only a little strength, he opened a door between them and him that nobody could mess with. This other church was so spiritually dead, so numb, so lukewarm, so compromised, so comfortable with their own natural condition that the, Jesus wasn't even in. He was outside knocking on the door, hoping that somebody would let him in. Amen. But even in their terrible condition, he declares to them that he loves them and he offers them a chance to repent. And if you read the rest of that portion to Laodicea, it tells us that he said, if they would be overcomers, that they would sit with him in his throne. Amen. I'm here to remind us this morning that we are keepers of our doors. We are keepers of our doors. Each and every one of us has to choose what we grant access to in our lives. And as Brother Shock pointed out to us, we will all stand before God and we will know that he made everything possible. Philadelphia wasn't a powerful place, a little strength, but he said they trusted God. And we will answer to God for who we are and what we allowed in and what we kept out. Amen. There are certainly things that should be allowed in, but there are things that should also be shut out. Laodicea is an example Well, the church at Laodicea, rather, is an example of what happens when you try to keep two doors open at the same time. You try to keep one door open to God, that's the hot, and the other door open to the world, which is the cold. What you end up with is a lukewarm mess in the middle that's that's a compromise that Scripture lets us know makes God sick. But when when John finished writing to the seven churches, warning them of what needs to change, encouraging them to be overcomers, chapter 3 ends. And then Revelation chapter 4 begins with these words. And after this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were a trumpet again, talking with me saying, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be here, which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne that was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. There is a door that is not yet opened, but on a day that he has appointed, that we do not know, the trumpet is going to sound, and the door is going to open in heaven. And with the voice of the archangel, he's going to say, come up hither. And to those that look for him will he appear the second time, without sin, and we will be in his throne room forever and ever and ever. Stand with me if you would this morning.